new home buying. That's that time of year, I guess, the spring. Brought back a lot of painful memories from when we were in that spot this time last year. Uh, I wonder what you're like when you're looking for a new house. Does this sound familiar? The sort of obsessive checking of Zillow? Uh, The procrastination in your work because you wonder if something new might have popped up in the 30 minutes since you last looked? The scrupulous attention to the detail of every posting? The Google street view that you do for every street of every house that you're looking at? The working of back channels, the talking to anyone, anywhere who might have any information about a house that's not on the market yet that you might have the inside track to? Or maybe it's just, I mean, house buying is really vivid right now because it's that season. I know some of you guys are doing it, but maybe for you it's just like the Craigslist hunt, right? For the new old couch, old new couch, or whatever it is that's on your mind. How often do you click refresh? Maybe it's the status of that grant application. I wonder if it's, is it an improvement to you guys that they now announce those things online? instead of through letters that come in your mailbox? Because now, I don't think that's an improvement, because in the old days, when you had to find out about whether you got accepted for something or, uh, or, or, or whether your grant was, was approved or passed through, you'd just get a letter in the mail. So once a day, you'd go out and check and, and have the buildup and the tension. Now it's online, so conceivably it could be any minute, right? So you're just clicking refresh over and over again. What do you look like when you're seeking something? How obsessive are you? How obsessive you are probably depends on how important the thing is that you're seeking, right? There's a direct correlation between how much energy and attention you put into the search and how important that thing is that you're searching for. And this is what Proverbs chapter 2 invites us to consider. What would it look like for you to seek wisdom? How important is wisdom actually to you? Is wisdom worth the kind of life-orienting, detail-obsessing attention that you give to a new job or a new house or whatever major crossroads you might find yourself in. So, remember what we're doing now. Uh, We are in a wisdom series. We're trying to understand what the Bible means by wisdom. There's several different books in the Bible that point the way. One of the biggest things we've been saying through the first couple of weeks of the series is that we want to always remember, call back into our minds, Wisdom in the Bible is not about a set of rules that you follow. There are sections of the Bible that are about that. Laws, the do's and the don'ts. Wisdom is not about an exemplary moral life, though it's involved with morality. That's not ultimately what it's about. Wisdom is a skill of living life well. It's more like an instinct. It's more like a sense of what's best in the moment in those circumstances. And Proverbs gets us there by giving us lots of little models of reality to, that encourage us to imagine ourselves in this situation, given these circumstances, what would you do? Here's what one person tried, and here's how it worked. Cause and effect. But before Proverbs gets into the, the nitty-gritty that we most associate with it, before Proverbs ever starts talking about money or words or sloth, or any of these big subjects, Proverbs wants to get us ready for wisdom. So the first nine chapters of the book unpack what it looks like to seek wisdom and 
why wisdom is worth seeking, the beauty of wisdom, trying to give us a, a set of senses for getting into the details of wisdom when that time comes. So these first few sermons, including today, are, are, are on these early chapters to try to frame wisdom for us. That's what we come to in Proverbs 2. And in this text, it's all about what the wisdom search looks like, the all-important search itself. I want to begin by reading chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. So would you please stand with me in honor of God's Word while I read? I'm going to read the first 11 verses, and then we'll unpack them together. This is God's Word. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. Excuse me. My son. Skip over to chapter 2. I was starting in chapter 1. That was last week. All right? That's online. You guys want to read that one? Or listen to that one? Should be online. This is chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom, inclining your heart to understanding, Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So I want to unpack this uh, expose on the search for wisdom this morning. I want to do it in three steps. What it looks like to seek wisdom. How to get started in your search for wisdom. And why it's worth it. Why the search for wisdom is worth the effort. What it looks like to seek wisdom. How to get started and why it's worth it. I mentioned earlier that it would be especially helpful to you this week if you've got a copy of the passage in front of you to walk through. And that's because, at least for this first section, describing what it looks like to seek wisdom, the key is in how the text breaks down. So it's kind of a skeleton that pops out pretty clearly. You can see it. It it follows an if-then structure. If-then. Cause and effect. Think, if you eat an apple a day, then... You keep the doctor away. I don't know if there's scientific studies to back that up, but it's a proverb, generally true. Or, if you poop in your Lightning McQueen potty, then you'll get two M&Ms. You guys know what's going on in our house right now. I'm not the one getting the M&Ms. Look at at verses 1 to 4. You'll see this structure. You see the ifs. Verses 1 to 4, if you receive my words, if you call out for insight, if you seek it like silver. The thens show up in verse 5 and verse 9. Then you'll understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Then you'll understand righteousness, justice, equity, every good path. You see that? If, then. That's the key. So what does it look like to search for wisdom? 
I want to walk you through it, following this structure, three steps. What does it look like? It's consuming. It's relational. And it's transformative. This is what it looks like to search for wisdom, okay? It's consuming. It's relational. And it's transformative. It's consuming. It's not a hobby. It's not casual or complacent. It's an occupation. That's what comes out in the first four verses. This is the impression you get when you take all the descriptions together. It starts with the humility to recognize you need help. My son, if you receive my words, treasure up my commandments with you. Make your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. This is a person who knows I've got to listen for something outside of me to speak into my life because my life doesn't have what it needs in and of itself. I can't just stay in what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, what I'm experiencing. My life as my only reference point is, is going to keep me from growing in wisdom. I need something from outside to speak in. That's a humility that's necessary. The humility that, that cranes itself for any sort of help, any sort of word from the outside that might come in. It's aiming your heart, which is your command center. It's where you think and feel and decide and prioritize. It's the you of you. It's aiming that at any understanding that could come your way. That's what you want. That's what you're seeking above all else. There's your passive side of it, right? Always listening. Always craning to hear. But then the description turns to an active side. It's more than just waiting. No, you don't just train your ear and your heart. You want to call out with your voice. This is the guy who's searching for every back channel. Just give me anything. I'll take it wherever I can get it. This is a person who's aiming his life at finding some sort of new insight. Call out for insight. Raise your voice for understanding. Scream for it. Verse 4 sums that up. Seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures. This is an active thing. This is someone who is treating wisdom or understanding or insight as if it is worth turning over every rock. You're not going to rest at night without having done everything you could to put yourself in a place to learn. You're not going to take no for an answer. So what's the search for wisdom like? It's consuming. Consuming like learning to play an instrument well. It takes discipline. It takes regular attention. You can't be casual about it and expect to have any fun with it. It's like learning to be a doctor, I assume, because I'm told. Puts you on a path that says no to other paths, right? If you want to be a physician, some of you are training for that. If you want to be a physician, you've got to commit to it in a way that is saying no to a lot of other things. It's risky because you're putting your life on the line for this path. And that means you're, you're shutting off other opportunities. And you're going to be putting a lot of yourself into this path. A lot of your time. It's going to, it's going to sort of crowd out what it's going to take for you to get there. It's going to crowd out a lot of other things that you could be doing with your time. It's going to, for a while, cost you money. Lots and lots. And lots of money that you're going to borrow from someone else and eventually pay back. It means, it means investing everything you've got for that season. Sacrificing a lot. Restructuring your life. And if it was unsuccessful, it would hurt you because you put so much into it and said no so often. Search for wisdom is like that. 
It's like, uh, it's like any skill. It's like learning to play golf, for example. If you want to be good at golf, you've got to give yourself to it. You've got to practice hour after hour after hour when it doesn't feel fun. So it's incompatible. The search for wisdom is incompatible with the way that I've pursued golf. So I, I enjoy it. play golf maybe four or five times a year, something like that, usually on vacation. And, uh, you know, I'm fine with the realities that that implies for my game. Every now and then I will break 60 playing nine. If you don't know anything about golf, that is really bad. Really bad. Uh, but I'm happy when I break 60 playing nine. Because honestly, I don't want to do what it would take to be better. And I'm fine with that. I, I don't want to pay money to go hit balls into an open field at a driving range. That's no fun. I want to be on the course. If I'm gonna, the five times a year I'm going to pick up my clubs, I want something to be on the line. I don't want to be out there swinging at a ball, hitting it out towards some flagpole in a big field. At the same cost that it would be to play at a cheap Nashville public course. If I don't practice at all. I haven't spent any time trying to learn more about the game. I don't watch instructional videos. I don't read any books. Every now and then I'll ask a friend for help, but not very often. Honestly, I'm just willing to live with the reality of a mediocre, at best, golf game. But if you want to be good at golf, you can't, you can't, you can't do it that way. If you want to find wisdom can't seek it that way. This sort of on-again, off-again, casual approach will not work. And the second point, this, it's consuming, right? The second point reinforces why this is the case. It's not, it's not just all-consuming. The reason it has to be all-consuming is that the search for wisdom is also personal. It's relational. So golf doesn't take it personally when I slack off, Right? But relationships don't work that way. And wisdom comes from a relationship. And you see this in the first then. So we've seen all the ifs. If you seek it in all of these ways. Then, verse 5 says, then you'll understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. That was a bit surprising when I first read that. You're expecting it to say, then you'll have wisdom. You'll be wise. Seek it like this, then you'll be wise. But no, there's an all-important step in between that on the path to wisdom. If you put all of yourself into the search for wisdom, then what you get is God. You get Him. And He's the one who gives you wisdom. Verse 5 is understanding the fear of the Lord and finding the knowledge of God. This is not a subject to be mastered, but a person to be known. The commentators that I read explaining what this verse means, especially this knowledge of God, it's, it's a very intimate knowledge. It's personal. It's the kind of knowledge that a husband and wife have for each other, a parent to their children, or close friend, one close friend has for another. It's that kind of knowledge. Not knowledge of a subject matter, but, but personal, intimate knowledge of a person. You seek wisdom, you get knowledge of God. The reason that wisdom is relational, the search for wisdom is relational, is that wisdom itself only comes as a personal gift from God to the one who seeks it. That's in verse 6. So if you do all these things to seek wisdom, then you'll understand fear, 
of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For, here's, he's explaining it. This is why this step is important. Let me explain that to you, he says. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the, for the upright. If you want wisdom, it's going to have to come as a gift. And it comes as a gift through the one that you know. Best I can make of it, the reason is that at most anything you know that matters, you know better by shadowing someone, by picking up from them how it's done, than by simply studying it as a concept or as a, a subject that you could learn better, right? So if you want to learn any skill, it may start with, with study of the subject, learning some of the basics, but, but you really got to get with somebody who knows how to do it, someone who gets it. And you've got to hang with them. And you've got you to be with them while they're doing their thing. You've got to be with them while you're doing your thing so that they can correct the way you're doing your thing. Wisdom, like any skill, is caught as much or more than it's taught. And it's caught in relationship with the God who made all that is. Who set up the world to work the way that it does. Who knows and sees all things. And who gives wisdom in the world to those who love and know Him. It's relational. So hopefully, hopefully by now it's becoming clearer why the search is described the way it is in verses 1 to 4. You, you can't do nothing to engage God, to engage this search for wisdom and ultimately to engage the God who gives wisdom. You can't do nothing to engage Him year after year and then wonder why you feel nothing for Him, why you, why you aren't growing, why you don't seem close to Him. Again, God and the wisdom that God gives, not a subject to be studied and to come back to when you feel like it. So I, I treat the Civil War this way. Since I was a little kid, for some reason, I don't even know why, I've just been really interested in the Civil War and studying history of it and, and uh, learning as much as I can about it. And uh, every now and then I'll get on a kick and want to read up or visit some sites or rewatch the Ken Burns documentary series, which is awesome, well worth the 20 hours or whatever it is you have to invest in it. Maybe you'll just take my word for that one, but it's really good. Uh, every now and then I'll get on a kick, I'll go back to some of that, and it's fun. And for a season, maybe even, I maybe even look like a searcher for wisdom in it. You know, I've, I've been known to do research, to strain my ears for any new, uh, any new information I can get, to even put money on the line, uh, paying for some sort of museum entry fee or or uh, a diversion on a trip or whatever to see some special site. Lindsay has been through more uh, Civil War forts than any person should ever have to go through. Uh, that, that is sane and has a reasonable perspective on life. Um, but you know what? My, my fascination with it is, is temporary. My search for it, for information that is, is, is temporary. Because inevitably something else crowds in and I, I'm not that into it for a while. You know, I'll... I'll get some other fascination or get tired or I get busy or I have a couple of kids that don't care anything about the Civil War or whatever. And before you know it, I've forgotten most of what I've learned. It doesn't stick. And you know what? That's okay. Because ultimately it doesn't matter that much. I mean, really. Ultimately, it doesn't have that big an effect. And the Civil War never takes it personally when I take some time off. But, but wisdom Wisdom is found in relationship. And you can't pursue a relationship with that same casual on-again, off-again interest. If you do pursue it that way, you just won't get what you're looking for. 
That's just the way relationships work. So what does it look like to search for wisdom? Well, it's, it's all-consuming. And the reason it's consuming is that it's relational. You get it when you get God. But when you get God, when it's all-consuming, and when the relationship kicks in and you get God, then the third thing, the third thing it looks like to search for wisdom is that it's transformative. The seeking of wisdom is transformative when you come at it like this. That's the last then in the verse, so in, in the passage we read. So, then, the, so ifs are in the first four verses. Then the payoff will be, verse 5, you'll get God. And then also, then in verse 9, you'll understand. In your soul, you will understand righteousness and justice and equity. Every good path, you'll get it. The word for good path, it sums up righteousness and justice and equity. It's, uh, according to one writer that I, that I came across this week, it's, it's, like, uh, it's like when a wagon rides through mud and tramps it down, and there's a groove in the road, and it hardens again. And it makes sense at that point to try to steer your wagon into that rut, and it guides you along. It's firm. It's dependable. It actually keep some of the work off of you because you just sort of let it go in the rut. It's, no, it's normal. It's routine at that point. When you know God, wisdom becomes like that right path to you where you're in the groove. And the next verse is fleshed out even more. Here's the reason. Verse 10 says, For the reason it will be like a, like a well-worn groove that you're just coasting in is that wisdom's going to come into your heart. No, even more, wisdom will become pleasant to your soul. It'll be beautiful. You'll seek it and know it and operate from it, not because someone's making you, not because there's someone who's threatening to whip you if you don't, but because you want to, because your heart is captured by it. That's what happens when you know God. When His ways rub off on you and become your own, it's in you, and you love it. You become like the runner who is pushed past the two five-minute runs interspersed with five-minute walks of the Couch to 5K program. Do people still do that? The Couch to 5K? It's pretty great. Five-minute walk, five-minute run, five-minute walk, five-minute run. Eventually, if you stick with it, you become like a runner who can't not run. Your whole body revolts against you if you, if you don't get your run in. Not because you have to, not because that was scripted for your day but because you, in some senses, live for it. You love it. You become like the musician who, who plays by the rules not because the music teacher says to, but because she loves the sound, because she loves the feeling of making beautiful music. According to Bruce Waltke, one of the commentators I'm reading, this notion of wisdom coming into your heart and transforming what you love. This is what the prophets had in mind when they talked of a new heart that would come when God's Spirit comes to His people. When a heart of stone is swapped out for a heart of flesh, a beating, pulsating heart of flesh that loves God and His ways. It's what Jesus had in mind when He talked of the new birth in John chapter 3. No one can enter the kingdom unless He be born again. And the Spirit gives this new birth. You've got to be transformed. And in an, an image that I use more often than I should because it helps me so much, it's what Jonathan Edwards had in mind when he, when he, uh, when he talked about the difference between knowing honey is sweet because someone told you and knowing honey is sweet because you 
tasted it. You put it in your mouth and you tasted it. You got it. Wisdom, when pursued in an all-consuming way, leads to the God who is the giver of wisdom, who puts his wisdom inside you so that you're transformed. That's what the search for wisdom looks like. But how do we get started? That's what we want, isn't it? We want this kind of relationship with God that feels good. The kind of relationship that we can't not engage in because we look forward to it every day. The kind that just changes what we love so that it doesn't seem so hard to do what's right. We want a life of following him that doesn't feel like drudgery. But, but friends, if you want that relationship, if you want wisdom that comes from that relationship, the reality is you're going to have to work for it. The reality is you're, you're going to have to work for it. It's not easy. We have a proverb in English that says something like, the best things in life are free. And maybe that's true if we're talking about money. Best things don't cost money. There's lots of good examples of that. But I don't think that's true at all if we're talking about cost in general. Because nothing valuable comes without some sort of cost. This passage is not saying that you're going to have to earn it. That you're going to have to earn wisdom. That God sits above you as you search for it and watches what you do and waits on you to say the magic password or to amass the right amount of good decisions before he comes to you. That isn't the image. It's not that you have to earn it. It comes as God's gift. That part's clear from verses 6 and 7. But what's also clear is that you're going to have to aim yourself at it. You're going to have to prioritize it with your life. And the target, if you want wisdom... The target is the personal knowledge of God. You've got to know Him. And wisdom comes from that. You don't have to earn Him. But you've got to prioritize Him. You've got to worship Him in your life. So how do you get started? That's what I want to talk about for the next few minutes here. Here's the first thing I want to say. I'm going to tell you three things about getting started. First, this is the most important, I think. First, don't wait until it feels good. To pursue the knowledge of God. Don't wait until it feels good to start pursuing a relationship with God. Verses 1 to 4 make this point, I think, really clearly. Seeking wisdom, treasuring it, craning yourself towards it, is not an emotion, but an action. It's an orientation. It's a it's a planting yourself on something. It's, it's like a kind of worship. Now, in, in our day, the way we think about worship oftentimes is a sort of experience that you have. Because oftentimes it's been in settings like this one, gathered worship where we're singing songs where we do have meaningful experiences of God. And we want that. But sometimes we can, we can narrow ourselves down where we're only seeing that as valuable engagement with Him. That's what worship is. When actually worship is much bigger. Worship just means a value that you place on something. The way that you seek something is a sort of worship of that thing depending on how you seek it. If you seek it casually, you just don't value it that much. If you seek it in a way that controls your whole life, that's a, that in itself is an act of worship no matter what it feels like. Verses 1 to 4 are not a description of how the seeker 
feels or what the experience is like. Not yet, anyway. That comes later. That comes in verses 9 to 11. At first, it's just a description of how the seeker judges the importance of what she seeks, of how bad that she wants it. The feeling comes later. The feeling is a downstream effect of knowing God. So your focus at the beginning has got to be on the search, on the quest, on building your life to actually engage with the words of God where He can be found. You can't slip into thinking what a lot of times we think, and that is that any, any relationship that's worthwhile, one that's loving, if love is involved, it won't take work. Love is what makes it easy. That's just an impoverished and off-base way of thinking about relationships. Love is what keeps you going when it, when it is hard. Love is what pushes through what's hard and finds something better on the other end. And I think we struggle often to find joy in God because we don't give it the time that it takes. We, we demand a sort of quick evidence that there's some payoff or we won't keep going. Um, it, it's a lot like, in this sense, it, it, this relationship with God that leads to wisdom is a lot like learning to play an instrument. So uh, one of my favorite instruments of all is the banjo. I love banjo music. And uh, Lindsay gave me a banjo for my birthday a couple years back, and I have had so much fun with it. But it, like, kind of like golf, as far as the structure of my life is concerned, has been more of a diversion than an all-consuming pursuit. It's something that helps me sort of unwind or not think about whatever else is weighing me down or stressing me out. But because that's the way I think about it, sometimes I'll go months in between playing it. And you can imagine what that's done to my progress, right? I'll learn a few chords, learn a couple of basic songs, get halfway decent at them. A, my friend Rick taught me a couple of cool methods, the hammer down and the pull off, or something like that. I was getting okay with that for a while, but, you know, it's probably been four months since I've even tried it. So next time I try it, I'm just going to have to ask Rick to teach me all over again because I'll have forgotten it. And it's okay because I'm enjoying myself. It's really fun. But it would not be okay for me, to, for me to blame the banjo for my inability to play well. It would not be okay for me to compare my life, my musical skills, to uh, Emily Nelson's up here playing the cello this morning. What I would love is just to be able to pick up the banjo and have fun with it. You know, to just like, I'm going to think I'm going to play this one today and just go. Not have to practice, not have to read anything. And it would be unfair for me to look at the way Emily plays up here and say, yeah, I want to play like that. Why can't I play like that? I mean, look how easy it is. Dave just calls out the song and says it's what key it's going to be in, and she just goes. And sometimes in relationship to God, you might be comparing your own relationship with God with someone else who seems to have a vibrant and deep, meaningful relationship with him that's getting a lot of joy out of their relationship with him and, and say, I'm just missing out on something. Either they're lying or I'm just not getting something. When maybe, friends, maybe what it is is that you just haven't put in the time that they have. And maybe you just haven't invested the, 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 the grunt work that it takes to make any relationship work. That, you've, that you're expecting the payoff without the discipline. These relationships, a lot like playing an instrument, they take discipline, especially early on. And you can't put God on a clock. Give me joy in you by the end of this week of my Bible reading, or I'm done. I'm going to move on to something else. You just got to keep at it. Which leads me to the second thing. How to get started first? 
Don't wait till it feels good. Get in the fight, okay? Get in the fight for a good relationship with him. And the second thing is, make a plan that you can stick to. Find something to read. With discipline, pray to God. You need to do both of them. Don't just talk to him. No relationship can work that's only got a one-sided communication. If all your relationship with God is, is calling out to him, even asking him to show himself to you, it, it won't work. You've got to also be willing to listen, just like in any human relationship. It's got to be two ways. So we pray to him. That's our expressing ourselves to God. But we also want to be downloading what he said about himself. That's found in his words. We want to be the, the son of Proverbs chapter 2 that's craning his ears for all the words that he can find from his teacher. We want to be finding everything we can find about God, what he's like. So figure out some way to get into the Bible. Something you can stick to. And then give it time. Here's the last step. So how to get started. First, you 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 need to take your expectations about what it should feel like off the table for a while and just give yourself to it. That's what verses 1 to 4 say. The the good feelings, they're a downstream effect. They're verse 9 and following. Verses 1 to 4 is all about effort. Don't wait till it feels good. Start having effort. And then find a plan that you can stick to. And then third, here's the last practical recommendation. Get some friends to help you, okay? Because if you just do this by yourself, you're probably not going to have the discipline that you need, at least not at first. Get some friends to help you. Use them for accountability. Ask your friends to keep you accountable. I know it might sound a little a little pedestrian or, or, or whatever, to, to, to have to have someone ask you if you did your reading today. Um, and I, obviously, you don't want that to be necessary long term, but, but you don't want to be in this alone. And you want to you ask your friends not just to keep you accountable, but also to speak into your life. You want to be asking them if they have some insight they can share with you about what they're seeing in you. You want to open up your life to them and say, all right, here's... Here's verses 1 to 4 from chapter 2 in Proverbs. This is what the seeker of wisdom looks like. Good friend that I trust to speak directly to me that, that I won't take it personally. What do you think about my life? How does my life measure up to what this seeker of wisdom looks like in verses 1 to 4? Do, do you think, looking at me, based on what you know about me, would you say that I treasure wisdom? Now knowing that wisdom comes from a relationship with God, ask your friend, would you think that I treasure my relationship with God? Does my quest to know him more deeply have any effect on the structure of my life? Ask them to be honest with you. They won't probably tell you unless you ask them. But it's a great gift. The wise are those who always look for insight from other people. And here's the last thing I want to leave you with. This is just to encourage you. Why it's worth the effort. Just a quick word here. What we're talking about here that what's necessary to find God and through Him to find skill at living well, it is incredibly difficult. I hope that's been clear. It is incredibly difficult. You need to know that before you start really trying to grow. It involves everything in your life. And, and you know what? Oftentimes, often, for me and for everyone I know, it'll feel like you've got to put in and put in and put in without getting anything out. So what makes it worth the effort? One of the great quest stories in American literature is the story of Moby Dick. Captain Ahab, who's got this obsessive desire to capture and kill the white whale. 
in some ways, the first few verses of chapter 2 kind of describe a Captain Ahab-like obsession. But there's this one place in Moby Dick where Starbuck, who is kind of the saner crew member, uh, Mr. Starbuck, the saner crew member who speaks and sort of tries to hold Captain Ahab back from his destructive search for the whale, says to Ahab of the whale, Moby Dick seeks thee not. It is thou, thou, that madly seekest him. Moby Dick is indifferent to you, Ahab. Sometimes God can feel like that. Sometimes we can be worried that all the effort we put into seeking him may be put into seeking someone who who just isn't there to be found or doesn't care to be found. Or what we might ask is, why should we believe that he'll have us in the first place if, if we were to seek after him? Why would he have us? Maybe you look down this passage, what we've read this morning, and we see that, that the Lord stores up wisdom for the upright. And you're thinking, I'm not upright. That he is a shield to those who walk in integrity. And you think, I have very little integrity. That he guards the paths of justice and watches over the way of his saints, but I don't feel like a holy one. How can you know it's worth the effort that God will be there for you to find, that he will give himself to you if you seek after him? In Luke chapter 15, Jesus comes to the theme of seeking something like a treasure. He uses words that are almost identical to the words of Proverbs 2. Two of his most famous parables fall in this section. There's the parable of the lost sheep and of the shepherd who, even though he has a hundred, loses one and goes after it, leaving the ninety-nine behind. Or of the lost coin where... where the person who is, the woman who has lost it, even though she has ten, she loses one of them. She cleans out her whole house to find that other one. Throws a party when she's found it. She's so excited about it. This is the searcher after something beautiful, something prized. Friends, in, that, in those parables that sound a whole lot like Proverbs chapter 2, the searcher of treasure is not us. The seeker after treasure in those parables is God. And the treasure is you. The treasure is all those who look to him in faith. All those who don't deserve the right to be with him, knowing him and drawing from him. It's the sinner. It's the simple. It's the foolish that God makes his treasure Behind the call on us to seek after Him is the promise of Jesus that He has come to us. It isn't a promise that our search won't be difficult or full of darkness even or plenty, full of plenty of days where the search seems as fruitless as it is endless. And it doesn't mean that as often as not your own apathy or cold-heartedness or flirtation with the promises of other gods won't keep you stumbling one step forward and two steps back. Sometimes it is going to feel that way. But what the promise of Luke 15, of of Jesus' whole ministry, what the promise of Jesus means is that as you stumble your way after God with whatever level of effort you're able to muster, the God you seek is seeking you. And He will never turn you away. In Christ, he has spoken so that you know what he's like. 
In Christ, he has taken on flesh so that he could live and die your death. In Christ, he is risen again so that he can give you his spirit to come into your heart and make you to love his ways. In Christ, God has come to you so that no matter what you see and no matter what you feel, you can know that if you seek after him, you will find him. That is his promise. Let's pray. Father, we, we so badly want to believe your promise and see it fulfilled in our lives. Would you please help us to have the discipline we don't have to seek after you? And would you please give yourself to us by your spirit? We want to claim the promises of Jesus and we want to taste those promises from our hearts. So help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Souls by sin afflicted bound with fruitless sorrow.